0: Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and Andy Cohen's twisted fantasies. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds, and today... You've got me, Rachel Hampton, a founding co-host of Slate's internet culture podcast, I See Why I Am or in case you missed it. Later in the show, I will be joined by Shamir Ibrahim, one of my absolute favorite culture writers and critics. She's written for The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Washington Post, BuzzFeed, Vox, Vulture, and so many other publications. Now. I'd be excited for today's show regardless because I get to kiki with Shamira and that's one of my favorite things to do in the world. But we also happen to be talking about one of my absolute favorite topics and that is reality television. Specifically the Bravo universe of reality television and let me tell you, it is a universe.
1: Women of Snow, are doing Vermont. baby, Old friends. So Previously excited. on Below Deck. That's fire. The fire this will be your last charter.
0: Are you going to find him? This season on Vanderpump Rules. No, Previously on Real Housewives. Like Victoria's going to boarding school in September so. Is there something hey. lacking in the home life? And welcome to the first ever Real Housewives of Dubai.
1: Reunion. Hey everybody, I'm Andy Cohen. And welcome to the Real Housewives of Miami Season 4.
0: Welcome to the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills Season 12 Reunion. I don't think I'm necessarily talking to an audience where I'll have to justify my love for reality TV, but here's my spiel, just in case you aren't a convert just yet. I think one of the biggest criticisms of reality television is that it's manufactured. And if you're gonna watch scripted television, why not go for HBO? And that is a fair point. I love me some succession, some true blood, but. I've often said that I think prestige TV, like those shows, kind of gives us an image of who we'd like to think we are versus reality television tells us who we actually are. There's kind of no easier way to suss out the concerns and morals of an era than watching the reality TV that was put out during that time. Like when New Jersey housewife Teresa Giudice went shopping in the series premiere.
1: I have so much fun shopping with Teresa because she clearly has no limits.
0: It was 2009, the housing market had collapsed a year earlier, but we were coming out of a recession and people wanted to spend their money after years in a depressed state. I hear the economy's crashing, so that's why I pay cash. 120,360,
1: 120,360.
0: And that's how many rooms- And that's just one example of how reality TV is a perfect weather vane of how we feel and think and talk about being women. And there's maybe no better weather vane than Bravo, with its constellation of largely women-led shows like the infamous Real Housewives and its attendant spinoffs like Vanderpump Rules, Winter House, Summer House, there's also Southern Charm, Below Deck, Married to Medicine, and the thing is, those are just some of the shows that are currently airing which means there is a lot of ground for Shamir and I to cover. We're going to get into all of that after a short break. Hey Waves listener, if you are loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. While you're there, check out our other episodes too. Last week, we had on indie musician Dessa to talk about what makes a great breakup song. Welcome back to The Waves. I'm Rachel Hampton, and I'm joined now by Shamir Ibrahim. Shamir, welcome to the show. I'm
1: so glad you're here. Thank you for having me back. Well, not on this platform, but I see why I am a faithful listener. So thank you for having me in the slate media apparatus, I guess. Truly,
0: when I was asked in an episode about Bravo, I was asked who would my dream guest be, and I was like, Shamira, reach out to her right now. That's all I want. We can have backups, but I don't need them.
1: I'm glad my faithful commitment to reality television has paid off in some (laughs) respects
0: has well speaking of that before we kind of dive into answering the extremely loaded question of whether or not what andy cohen has created is good for women uh i wanted to (laughs) ask (laughs) let me ask about your bravo bona fides what was your first bravo show what do you currently watch besides real house size potomac which you recap for vulture everyone should read even if you don't watch the show the recaps are
1: chef's kiss. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I believe I started with New York and Atlanta first, right? I am not a person who started at the beginning with OC. New York was close to my heart just because, you know, I grew up in New York City. I'm very familiar with the cast of characters, like those archetypes that are in that small enclave that is drunk white woman of the Upper East Side, right? You know? (laughs) Um, So that really kind of gave this cozy feeling to me, you know, as they kind of escalated in their shenanigans. Um, Then Real Houses of Atlanta was just amazing to watch just because it started as the average, around the way Black woman, you know, a Black woman that is very familiar to so many of us who became iconic just for being themselves, right? Like, I think we all know the kind of archetypical Black woman who is unwittingly and like, just incessantly ostentatious, you know, very quick at the quick at the hip, quick at the mouth, and, and a little reckless, right? Sometimes to their own detriment. And showing that dynamic on reality TV in a way that feels familiar in a way that is immediately iconic and memeable, I think, was very charming for me to watch uh, at a time when I was still in college. And so I was in a very, very wide space. And I was able to very much tune into just the average shenanigans of upwardly mobile community. But like, kind of upwardly mobile, you know, it's kind of like fake it till you make it right, you know, and, and knowing that sort of, you know, okay, you got the Louis Vuitton accessories, but you know what I mean, you still kind of check to check on your rent, you know, mm-hmm. like everyone knows those kind of vibes, right, you know, and, and those sort of early seasons were very, very heartwarming to really kind of get into it was appointment television for me and my friends, right, Um, to be able to check in and, and see what Nini and the girls were doing and watching someone like Nini become a breakout star so easily was hysterical. Wow. When I get up
0: in Kim's face, it's sort of like I'm chastising a a child. Like you would do your two-year-old. You get down to their level and you look them in the eye and you say, Mommy, it's not playing with
1: you right now. I then pivoted to Beverly Hills, which is like a universe into. In, it, in and of itself right like, like Beverly Hills is his own animal right because it interacts with celebrity directly from day one you're dealing with child stars you're dealing with Beverly Hills as a character similar to how New York functions as a character in Real Houses in New York and navigating like the aspirational um nature of that sort of community not just because of course, reality stars are trying to make money, but also just trying to live in Beverly Hills society and people trying to cling on to whatever sort of cachet they feel they had or once had and showcasing that sort of Really craven, aspirational nature, especially of mostly white women, right? Like, really brazenly on television, right? You see these, you know, children of child stars and siblings of child stars, like the whole dynamics about the Richard Sisters, right? You know, and their affiliates in that network. And then it'll lead to the spin off of Vanderpump Rules, which is a whole other ecosystem of, in and of itself, which led to. Summer and Winter House, two kind of spinoffs that I'm really not as personally familiar with, but just shows like how that small little enclave has exploded into like a whole other kind of Bravo titan.
0: Yeah, that's completely fair. I mean, there's really just so much out there, not least because Bravo's not the only one doing it at this point, right? Like the docu soap genre, as you mentioned, is huge. And so I actually wanted to ask you, Shows in this genre are being produced by everyone from Netflix to ABC, and I wondered what you think makes a Bravo show a Bravo show as opposed to these other networks.
1: I think it depends on what era of Bravo you kind of tap into. Early stage Housewives, it really was at some point, a version of a slice of life show, right? You know, it was still sensationalized. It was still a manufactured drama because you have to kind of do that, right? But you kind of had these certain tropes in every single show. You had the version of a Greek chorus character, right? So in New York, that was Bethany for several seasons. In Atlanta, that was NeNe. Then you would have the kind of person who was the anchor for the show. The anchor would be the person who everybody had to interact with one way or the other, the person who everybody knew For a while, that was Sheree, right? You know, (laughs) Sheree has kind of come in and out in in Real Housewives kind of recognizance. Um, You know, in New York, you could argue that being Ramona, right? You know, um, just because of her relationship with most of the women, the early seasons, it was probably actually Jill. And then you had the agitators, right? Like their business is to come in and just throw the bomb and see how it kind of all goes out and see, you know, hey, we know there's a simmering drama. It could be over something minuscule because most fights in real life are, are over minuscule things, right? It could be over, you didn't text me back for two days, right? You know what I mean? But somehow that person is going to be the one to said, oh yeah, I know she apologized for texting, not texting me back for two days, but actually when we spoke, you know, she said, oh, this person is such a demanding diva. She's just miserable over her marriage. That's why a two-day text takes so long. And all of a sudden you have a scene. In that time, especially those first seasons, it's not like they're really making money off of that, right? You're talking like people who are making about 2000 an episode. But because it became a legitimate cultural phenomenon, then you kind of transition to like phase two of Housewives, which are people who, even in the legacy cast, are highly self-aware of how they're perceived and try to kind of produce themselves, right? There are people who like produce the scenes, of course, you know, like I said, the agitators who are trying to create conflict to keep the story moving. But then, you know, you have this sense of self-awareness of like, oh, well, if I do this, I'm going to be looked at this way, right? But if I come in this way, people are going to view me more as like, The, you know, villain to redemption arc, trying to manipulate kind of how they're perceived publicly. And that kind of changes the show from a slice of life to a show that's really an examination of human behavior, how people see themselves, how people want to be seen, and kind of how we as consumers who are increasingly savvy because of social media and different things, navigate piercing the fourth wall and deciding what the actual story is. Because now, because of increased visibility, we know that fights between castmates aren't really fights about a text message anymore. It's really oh, you got more screen time and we get paid per episode. And that's why you're gunning for that person because, oh, how dare Denise Richards think that she could barely show up and only film for a week and a half while she gets paid a million dollars and I'm still on the $400,000 bracket, whatever the contract may be. Then you move on to, I think, what is the current phase of Bravo, which is, you know, people who know it is a platform that explodes because of a very, very loyal, very diligent following that has its own very art it, you know, network of podcasts, of blogs, of people who really kind of create this whole apparatus for Bravo in and of their own volition. And therefore, like, this is a great opportunity for me to, even if I'm only there for a season, boost my following, great opportunity to bring attention to my business and a great opportunity to generate fame in a quick Turnaround, right? So now you see people who are looking for moments, who are creating quick, you know, quick conflicts that it may seem really inopportune or really just disjointed. And that kind of narrative of not necessarily just self producing, but or be hyper aware of how you might be perceived, but actually trying to create a moment that can be a meme, right? That can be a gif that is put on Tumblr to be, you know, reshared everywhere. That is actually now the aspiration, right? Because then that's how you end up on a BravoCon, you know, platform, right? That's how you end up being able to make merch, right? That has a quote on it that you can upmark for like $25, you know, because you said just one innocuous saying and all of a sudden a thousand people will buy a shirt for it. That's kind of, I think, where we are now where it's a very aspirational space to be able to generate a platform off of at, unfortunately, I would say sometimes any expense possible
0: so I mentioned the host and executive producer of the real Housewives franchise Andy Cohen a second ago and this conversation is about feminism we'll kind of get into the politics of Bravo in the latter half of the show but I wanted to ask you a question that's kind of been rattling around in my head for the past year or so which is how much of the Bravo universe do you actually think is bound up with Andy as a person like I know he thinks he's the center of the universe and he was a VP of development and talent at Bravo until 2013 which means he He's left a kind of pretty indelible mark on the network. But who would Andy be without, like, Lisa Vanderpump or, like, NeNe Leaks or even Bethany Frankel?
1: Like, the answer is kind of mixed. Like, for example, the reunions, right? Like, they don't exist without Andy really doing them. Like, I know people... We have very strong critiques of how Andy has handled some of the reunions, mostly because as they strive to expand the kind of catalog of shows and they reach into more diverse topic matter, more complex topic matter, Andy has struggled to really be able to rise to the occasion to really engage in those topics properly, right? And I think a lot of us have noticed that and addressed that and tried to speak towards that in different ways. In the original iteration, like that first phase of Bravo, right? Like Andy was the touch point for most of those housewives. So, the legacy housewives that people think of as iconic, Andy was their major touch point. He has spoken about that, how he does not necessarily have as much of a relationship with the newer housewives that come on. Like maybe he says hi to them. Maybe, you know, there's an initial early introduction, but they don't necessarily all have his phone number the way that the early ones did where they would text him or they would call his office. And, you know, it's just not, you know, the same level of engagement, right. Um, Mostly because of course he's not as involved in developing the shows or, you know, like he still, I believe has an EP credit on almost all the shows, but he's not involved in the day-to-day operations the way that he once was. Andy has made it clear that his idea of the Housewives was born out of that desperate Housewives, like All My Children, General Hospital, Soap Opera, like the adoration of that iteration of television programming and trying to bring that into reality TV. And you can see the sort of love for... That sort of serialized programming and how that shaped how these shows kind of came to be. And I think that matters. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you also see the very distinct hand of not only the casting of the iconic people who kind of make the shows what they are, but also the production teams, right? You know, when a show kind of is a shed media show versus a purveyors of pop show, right? Like you see it in the stylistic choices. You see it in the way that the actual episodes are built out. So. As the seasons progress, it's not just a matter of the casting, it's actually a matter of how production engages with both their cast and actually works on building narrative arcs and things about engaging with the audience. So I think while Andy is, I would say, a narrative godfather, (laughs) right? The years as they progress, it's really become more incumbent to really look at how production engages with the cast, how they engage in casting, how they build relationships with their cast and how that translates on the screen. Right. And then of course, who the cast is and how they stand out and build relationships on TV. Like for example, you know, Real House of a like people had very iffy feelings on it. It was a mixed bag. You know, I recapped that as well. And I tried as much to give as much context from my own perspective of that kind of cultural space. But no one can deny that Chanel Ayan is a star. You know what I mean? Like she became a breakout star quite quickly. That show probably struggles a little more to make it to season two without Chanel Ayan.
0: We're going to take a break here, but if you want to hear more from Shamir and myself on another topic, check out our Slate Plus segment, where today we're going to be talking about another one of my favorite reality television shows, Netflix's Selling Sunset. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on a new Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like this one. To learn more, go to slate.com thewavesplus.
1: Hey, Waves listeners, we wanted to share some exciting news. The Slate Shop is now open. Go to shop.slate.com to browse our selection of thoughtfully curated, high-quality products that support small businesses, Slate's independent journalism, and your shopping habit. From hand-poured candles and expertly crafted pasta makers to official Slate merch and beaded pickle pouches, say that five times fast, the Slate Shop is your destination for unique products and fabulous gifts. That's shop.slate.com and new customers will receive 10% off their first order. Happy shopping!
0: Welcome back to The Ways. I'm Rachel Hampton, and I'm here with Shamir Ibrahim. We're talking about the Bravo Cinematic Universe. So, in 2013, Gloria Steinem said of the Real Housewives franchise that, quote, it is women all dressed up and inflated and plastic surgery and false bosomed. It is a menstrual show for women. Now, I found really fascinating Steinem's use of the concept of minstrelsy, which is usually referring to like the antebellum practice of white actors dressing in blackface to perform racial stereotypes. And when it comes to the idea of these women performing, there have been some really wild moments. I mean, people who don't even watch Real Housewives probably know about Shrey Whitfield saying, who gon' check me, boom?" Or when Lisa Rena broke that wine glass, in Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. You know what? You're Let me tell you something. Don't you ever t- t- don't just touch. Don't touch my husband. Ever. Just say. Don't you,
1: you ever? You don't want t- out for everybody to know. You better watch what you out. talk about me, or everybody you will know. Never. Everybody, everybody will know my husband.
0: Uh-huh. Everybody will know. You understand,
1: that, you you understand that? Everybody you, will you ever go, will go
0: after me. Never. F- you don't want. I lost my. In but what? in a way, in her critique of the show, I feel like Steinem removes agency from the women who are choosing to be involved. And I wanted to ask you, Shamira, how much agency do you think the average real housewife has, like, after the edit, after Andy Cohen or his producers have their say?
1: Well, the use of the word menstrualcy is crazy. Because <laughs> if you want to talk about menstrualcy on Real Housewives, we could just talk about um Lauer dressed as Diana Ross, like there was actual mm-hmm. blackface. Like yes. we don't need to use like that as a really backwards analogy. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I think you know it's a complex question. I think Gloria really painted with a broad brush, but I do think that there is you know, and as critiques continue to expand, right, um, there is this innate tension of what people expect from reality TV when they sign up and what they realize it actually entails. Especially as we're, like I said, in phase three of reality TV, where some people think, oh, I can come on. I can curate whatever part of my life. I can share a platform, do what I want to do. You know, I don't necessarily need to, you know, showcase, let's say, whatever drama I have with a kid. And manipulate it, so I'm only showing the parts of my life that I want to show. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it reads off as inauthentic. But over the course of that, what can happen is you realize just how much you're actually you actually end up sacrificing, right? So if the other cast members feel okay, well, we know that this person has mess going on that they're not discussing. We're going to find a way to bring it on, on the show, right? Like that happened with Uba Hassan on Real Housewives of New York, where they forced her to talk about her boyfriend before she was ready to talk about it. In like the midst of that, sometimes what can happen is this like natural tension of. Okay, I wasn't ready for this roller coaster ride. Most people are taken aback by their first season, right of oh, I did not expect it to be this intense. I did not expect it to you know take over my life in this way. I have to do all of these guest hits. I have to do all of these PR hits. Uh, I thought this would be just a part of my life, not my entire life. and also now I'm constantly in this social media engagement with you know the entire world and my castmates. and there's a pressure for, okay, well, Don't worry, you have the reunion to, you know, address yourself. The reunion is a high pressure situation, 13 hours, bright lights, you know, fighting for your life. It's it's you know, basically a cage match, right? Cage match, no, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) To be able to come out on top.
0: When you say 13 hours, you're talking about those long filming days to make a single reunion episode.
1: Then assuming you get what you want, great. If you don't, if you don't feel like you came out on top, then you're speaking to the producers later. And they say, "Well, you have next season to be able to tell your story, right?" You know, and so it does become a little bit manipulative for the actual talent, right? You know, and I think that's something that some of the cast has tried to explain, of like, "Hey, I agree to this." But on the back end, I realized that what they actually did was this, right? Because they have the right to tell the story that they want to tell, right? So you think you're meeting one person, right? But the actual call sheet will actually have, you know, other people meeting you. And all of a sudden you're in a different scenario than you expected. Whatever. They're they're building TV. That's what the producer's job is to do, right? But you do find yourself in situations you weren't ready for, situations you didn't expect, conflicts that you weren't expected to, and also, you know... There's kind of this, because, you know, they're all independent contractors, there's a lack of actual accountability from either Bravo or a production company. um, And people have to remember it's a workplace. So a lot of things can happen that don't necessarily get managed the way that you would expect to be managed, right? If you were actually at your actual workplace. So those screaming matches that we see on TV that sometimes can be very entertaining. Think about if you got screamed at by your coworker, right? You know, in a scene that you didn't expect and all of a sudden someone's screaming at you, we see 45 seconds of that and it might be iconic, but that probably went on for 15 minutes or The fact that these seeds go on for so long, right, that naturally, because there's alcohol everywhere, and this is not just something that's specific to Bravo, but this is a problem that has happened at other franchises like The Bachelor, like Love is Blind, a lot of these other franchises where they do this thing intentionally where the glasses are not, are are solid, so you don't see how much they're consuming at any given time, and, you know, so they're there for two hours, One drink turns to four, turns to five. And you know, a lot of these girls do not eat any sort of carbs, right? So those four drinks really feel like seven or eight. And a lot of those worst moments really are, you know, them being intoxicated out of their minds. That's not justified any of the things that they did or said, but I wouldn't necessarily want some of my lowest moments documented and put on screen. Right. And they have to navigate that. That's something that Leah McSweeney had actually talked about where she actually actively relapsed, right. You know, on the show, she had started to relapse before the season, but when she went through her relapse, that became an iconic moment, right. Where they were in the Hamptons, it was her intensely Mortimer. She like blacked out, took her top off, was running around with tiki torches
0: (laughs) <laughs> you bitch, night. If You get naked. I get naked, like and that's that. I'm like stir crazy. There's just only so much talking about yachts and D class A that I can really handle before I'm like, this is how I have fun. <laughs> Watch and learn. All right, I'm kind of that's being fine. in the pool right now. I'm like the prude that can't take my clothes off right now. Rip it off, bitch! Get in the pool. You know, this is a f*** you didn't Dale. This is a f*** you society. High society. F- you, Park Avenue. Yes, bitch!
1: That became a meme that was everywhere. Her and Tinsley Mortimer in the actual pool, topless, posing, right? You know, as opposed to someone who had been sober for seven years, having a very public relapse. And that's not to say that these women don't have agency in the choices that they make, right? But I think sometimes when we say oh, you have agency and the choices that you make to be able to do something. It's like, well, yeah, people have agency in toxic work environments too, right? You know what I mean? You can always quit, Right. But there's always sometimes a negotiation process in that, right, where it's, hey, the next season is when they say your price bracket goes up because, you know, there's a fixed price bracket for every season. So if I suffer through this season, whatever the pummeling I'm taking, next season, I feel like I'm going to get rewarded for it. Or hopefully next season, we're going to see whether or not the person who I have a conflict with will even be here. So all these sort of mini rewards that allow someone to really see if they could put, you know, put up with it for a little more. But when you think of it from like an actual workplace perspective, it's actually a very harmful workplace environment to deal with a lot of the things that uh, they dealt with, especially as the show started to engage in, in, the, especially after 2020, trying to diversify their respective franchises, right? There was a lot of Uh, Division within the fan bases, um, as well as, you know, just within the storylines within various cast members of just really struggling to integrate their various shows and most specifically with New York and Beverly Hills. Those are things that in a normal environment you have to navigate through HR publicly. And now you're litigating that on a day to day environment as what a teachable moment for the audience.
0: There's a there's a difference between signing up to do something and knowing the full context of what that is, combined with the fact that the way you're getting portrayed almost has nothing to do with what you say. Which reminds me of something that everyone's favorite bad feminist Roxanne Gay said about Gloria Steinem's quote, Roxanne Gay said, I think that the Real Housewives franchise allows women to be their truest selves. We see the mess, we see their amazing friendships and everything in between. When women are allowed to be their fullest selves, it is the most feminist thing we can do. I found the kind of racial breakdown of these views pretty interesting, but I also found myself not really agreeing with Roxanne here either. I don't actually know if allowing women to be their fullest selves is the most feminist thing we can do, not least because feminism is actually like a radical political framework. It's not just like (laughs) rah-rah girl power. And, you know... If the fullest version of someone is being a right-wing nut job, I don't really think that's feminism. Like Candace Owens is probably being her fullest self, but I don't know if that's really feminist.
1: I don't know if allowing Vicky Gunwillson to like basically, you know, uh, parrot COVID conspiracies on Ultimate Girls Trip was necessarily the most feminist thing in the world. It just is what happened.
0: But it makes me want to ask a really open-ended question which is do you think bravo or even reality television show in general can actually be radical i think there's this real desire to make the things that we consume fit into our politics and so calling bravo or your favorite franchise like feminist or you know anti-racist or whatever feels like a really high mandate for some of these shows to be operating under
1: the shortest answer is no, right? Um, like, yeah. like, to give you right? <laughs> I think, as with a lot of pop culture, it serves as a lens for our contemporary society. Like, you know, what do you look at? Kind of that Overton window of, like, what we're willing to accept, not accept, right? You know, how we engage with each other, um, you know, how we view our collective obligations as individuals in our society when we get into conflict, when we manage conflict, um, and or... You know how we have to interact with each other. I think. That shows, like Real Housewives, are really good reflections as to both how individuals do that publicly because of how they feel like they have to perform something, for, and also how audiences receive that and engage with it, right? You know, so you can see how someone like Dorit on Beverly Hills manages PTSD and like the perception of like how long she's allowed to recover from that, versus you know, a Garcelle who is still has a tense relationship with her coworkers because she's still a little unweary for how she feels like they mishandled dealing with her family. And so having those sorts of observations culturally are really insightful lens to talking about different things that are in a more accessible way, like power, class dynamics, racial boundaries, you know, conversations that a lot of us can have and like a longer sociological construct that a lot of people won't read if I wrote like a 3,000 word critical essay, but would be more willing. (laughs) I appreciate it. (laughs) But are just frankly more willing to understand if, you know, I explain colorism in the context of Potomac, right? That doesn't make it radical. It just allows for insight. I don't want to say it's a neutral thing because I do think that there are detriments to like doing the whole like verite approach and like standing back and letting everything play out. I think that there are times that they should intervene, right? I think there are times that, you know, hey, this person is drinking themselves sick, right? I don't know if we necessarily need to put that on camera. It's a little dangerous. Maybe somebody needs to like have a conversation about them not drinking or them not being (laughs) on camera for a little bit or... Hey, this person is parodying very dangerous political opinions. And I know that Bravo strives their hardest to this whole apolitical, we're not engaging in politics or whatever. However, at some point, you know, you have to figure out a way to to navigate that, at least in a manner that allows some sort of pushback from other cast members, right? In a very visible way. I think that it's impossible for it to be a radical framework because that requires a commitment from the network, for the production from every single piece to really be, say, we're here to dismantle a patriarchal construct. And that can't happen because half the shows, their first insult is in saying, you ain't even married, bitch, right? Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so that's already out the window from a radical feminist construct, right? But what it does offer is just a space to engage and be insightful and really think about how we view each other in the present, you know, contemporary idea of relationships between women Um, both in and out of the workplace and what we view as acceptable and not acceptable and why, right? And I think that as a place for just conversation and interrogation is worthwhile.
0: Well, I think that we solved world peace and also feminism. So I think that's... (laughs) That's (laughs) true off the (laughs) checkbook. Fixed it. Thank you so much for joining me, Shamir. This has been so much
1: fun. Thank you as always, Rachel. Had a great time.
0: That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shayna Roth and Vic Whitley-Berry. Daisy Rosario is our senior supervising producer. And Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves@slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts different topic, same time and place. Thank you so much for being a Slate Plus member, and since you're a member, you get this weekly segment. Today, Shamir and I are going to be talking about Netflix's Selling Sunset, the show where no one sells any real estate.
1: So I follow this TikTok account that actually, like, it's like a LA realtor. Who knows how real this is, you know, whatever it's TikTok. But um, apparently it's an LA Beast realtor who could, like, go into the realtor database and yes, see how the many MLS. houses they sell. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As you can see, I know all the things about buy, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, like, on average, they, like, sell one to two houses a year, <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, I know. So I'm all over the Reddit for selling Sunset. And so there's a lot of realtors in there kind of explaining what's happening. And apparently that's not too abnormal for luxury real estate because, I mean, the commissions are. It's crazy. Yeah. Minimum $60,000 up to there was a house that they showed on this season where the commission would have been like a million dollars. I think that was in Cabo. And
1: also, I think that they get low key finesse by Jason because, like, they, they show that, like, Jason has. Had like thirty two sales for the year, and I'm like, okay, how are all of your realtors only selling two, but you're selling thirty two? It's like, okay, so they're doing the legwork, but you're getting the listing. Yes, no, I think that's what's happening. Because one
0: time Chelsea was like, "Oh, Jason just gave me this listing," and I'm like, does that mean that that's technically Jason's sell? Like, what is going on here? This show is honestly, it's one of my favorites. I can't, I can't help myself. <laughs> I saw you tweeting about it. You know what it. I love?
1: <laughs> I, I, I genuinely love that it just gives you that, like, Hills Error Sheen. Like, give me green yes. screen. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, give me that gloss. Give me the fantasy. Give me all the affinity pools. Yes, we all the four pools. Why not, right? Give me the, like, unrepentant indulgence right like in class aspiration in a way that is like so obscene that they create narratives that they don't understand are like not actually reasonable like the mansion tax the villain of the season (laughs) the mansion tax. they were like guys mansion tax you gotta get all these sales in because they're charging these rich people so much money like i'm like am i supposed to feel bad at they're gonna la is trying to make people pay probably how much they actually owe yes (laughs)
0: yes also importantly i think that the money from the mansion tax which is a california real estate bill that money is going towards affordable housing in california which is has one of the lowest inventories of affordable housing in the country and so it's so funny that this show which like it makes sense. They're selling luxury real estate. They have to talk about what's affecting their buyers. But the entire season, they're just like, we have to sell all these houses before the mansion tax comes into place. If we don't, our buyers are going to get fucked and so are sellers. And you're just sitting here like, I don't feel sorry for you.
1: <laughs> that was just some of our Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, go to slate.com slash the waves plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Slate.com slash the waves plus.